You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. How often is no sex, no problem? With me today is Dr. Jan Schifrin, an Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Biology at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Menopause Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. Today, we are discussing Dr. Schifrin's research, proving that while sexual problems in women are common, they do not always affect quality of life and do not always require treatment. Welcome, Dr. Schifrin. Thank you. Much of your research has been about the effect of androgens and estrogens to improve libido and sexual pleasure, yet in this study, you looked at a more fundamental issue, specifically how many women consider their sexual issues to be a problem. I'm curious, what was the impetus for this study? We often hear quoted that 30 to 40% of women have sexual problems, and that's a statistic identified in many previous studies. But you could really argue that anything that affects 30 to 40% of otherwise healthy adult women is normative, and we should be very careful about calling that a medical problem and somehow insisting that that problem or suggesting that that problem then requires medical treatment. Mm -hmm. So what we really wanted to look at is how often do problems of low desire or arousal or response cause personal distress because to truly be a medical problem, the concern should be associated with distress. It should truly be affecting the woman's quality of life. And what we found in our study is that the prevalence of sexual problems is about 30 to 40% depending on the problem you're looking at. That was very similar to what we expected from previous studies. But what's novel is that we found that only about 12% of women with sexual problems state that that problem is truly associated with personal distress, that it's really bothering them. Can you go back a little bit and talk about how the study was conducted? Well, we sent questionnaires to 50,000 households. These women were identified through a panel so that they were representative of U.S. adult women. We received back 30,000 questionnaires, so we had a good response rate. And this study really does reflect the thoughts and feelings of a lot of women, 30,000 women. Mm -hmm. And... What kinds of problems did you look at in the study specifically? We asked women specifically about problems of sexual desire, arousal, and orgasmic response. And then we also, of course, had a statistic for any sexual problem. All right, so let's talk about some of the specific factors that had an impact on your results. First of all, age. Did you look at age? Yes, we did. And what we found was very interesting. Not surprisingly, sexual problems were more common in older women, women over 65. But when we looked at distressing sexual problems, what we found is that that group of women actually was much less likely to report distress associated with those sexual problems. The group that was most distressed by their sexual problems were really middle-aged women between the ages of about 45 to 64. The youngest women in the study, those between the ages of 18 to 45, had both the lowest prevalence of sexual problems and the lowest likelihood of distress associated with them. So it's really our middle-aged women who appear to be the most distressed by their sexual problems. You know, anecdotally in my practice, I find that the women that are most distressed about sexual issues are women that have had a healthy, satisfying sex life and then something happens, whether it's, you know, menopause, hormonal change, surgery, that changes that. So did you look at that in this study in terms of how the women that were distressed, if they were distressed because it used to be good and now it's not good? Unfortunately, that was not something we assessed in our 
study, we did look at a lot of potential factors that could be associated with the problems. And um, not surprisingly, what we found that was, was that depression was a very important predictor. So having depression led to an almost you know, twofold likelihood of reporting a distressing sexual problem. So I think we need to be especially careful to address sexual problems in our patients with depression. And did you factor in antidepressants in this depressed population? Was it the depression itself I'm getting at, or was it the medication? Basically, we assessed all of those things. So we did find an association between depression and antidepressant use, but we couldn't specifically, from the data we have, tease out which came first. And, you know, of course, depression is not the only other compounding medical problem. What other medical conditions seem to have an impact? We also find an association between anxiety and distressing sexual problems, thyroid problems, and urinary incontinence. Yeah, I was going to get to the incontinence stuff because that is really interesting. I think that's one of the most under-discussed reasons that women avoid intimacy. I completely agree. I mean, first of all, we're not very good about even asking about incontinence at our visits. And when we do, it's rare that we then say, hey, well, now tell me any sexual problems. And do you think those sexual problems may be affected by the incontinence? Do you think that women are even aware that the incontinence is impacting on their intimacy issues? We didn't specifically address that in a study, but from clinical experience, I think women really are. I mean, often women will even say, you know, I'm I'm anxious to have relations because sometimes I'll have a, you know, an episode of involuntary urine loss and it's so embarrassing. So yes, I think women are aware, but they don't talk to us about it. So we really need to ask. Talking about bringing the partner into the mix, you know, certainly when you look at how distressing sexual dysfunction is, a lot of it has to do with where the partner is with all this. So how did you look at that in this study and what did you find? That's an excellent point. Not published in this study, but data that we have been looking at and presented, when we look at the predictors of distress, so that if you take all of the women, let's say, with low desire, and then you look at the group who are distressed by that low desire, the question is, what are the predictors of distress? And what we found is that having a partner is a very important predictor of distress. So that clearly low desire is much more of a problem for women when they're partnered, and that makes sense. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jan Schifrin, an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School and director of the menopause program at Massachusetts General Hospital. Today, we are discussing Dr. Schifrin's research, proving that while sexual problems in women are common, they do not always affect quality of life and do not always require treatment. I'm curious, in the group in your study that did not seem distressed at all. Did you look at hormone levels, testosterone levels, free testosterone, anything such as that? And is there a relationship? This study was really more of an epidemiologic prevalence study. You know, we examined 30,000 women, so we did not look at blood levels. But there are actually some excellent studies which tried to correlate blood levels with sexual problems. One of the best is out of Australia, and that was a randomly sampled population of U.S. adults between 18 and probably in their 70s. And importantly, they found really no clear associations between testosterone levels and levels of sexual problems. There were a few small correlates they found, but I think the take-home message from that study was that the hormone levels are not a good predictor of sexual problems or sexual distress. And I think that's very important for women to realize. I think it is, and I think that there's, you know, there's other data that shows that it as well, yet women very often have their testosterone levels tested. Do you think there's any utility in that at all, or do you think this is really inappropriate? If you're trying to determine the etiology of a sexual problem, all you really need is a very thorough history and a good physical exam. Blood levels really play a minimal role, and certainly testosterone levels really don't play any role.
Let's talk about that small group of women that does seem to want to improve their sexual function. While it was a small group in your patient population and your study seems to be a very large percentage of my patients. What I'd say is that although 12% is a much lower number than 40%, that still represents, you know, one in eight U.S. adult women. And so it is an important problem. And again, these are the women who are really distressed by it. On our questionnaires, we got to distress by asking about things like embarrassment, unhappiness, frustration, guilt. So these are important emotions women are experiencing associated with their low desire. The good news is there really are many effective therapies for women with distressing sexual problems. And they don't necessarily involve anything that one might find out of a medicine cabinet. So as you already mentioned, for our women who have depression, treating the depression can really improve women's sex lives. But in addition, we have to be very careful about the medications that we use to treat that depression. And so using typically medications that aren't SSRIs can often really improve the sexual function. And then of the SSRIs, I think some are associated with more sexual issues than others. Right. So I think this is a great time for a woman to really see a psychopharmacologist, someone with a lot of expertise in treating depression, but a lot of expertise with the medications themselves and the various side effects, especially sexual side effects. So let's talk a little bit about the role of testosterone, given that it isn't worthwhile to measure levels, but certainly I think there are a number of studies that show that it is worthwhile to give exogenous testosterone either with or without estrogen. I'd like to hear your thoughts about utilizing testosterone if you think it's appropriate, if you think it's helpful, and giving it alone or in conjunction with estrogen. Well, what we know is that basically all women by the age of 50 have low testosterone levels. And that's really another reason why there's no reason to draw it. Our testosterone levels decline with aging. And so that a woman at age 50, whether she's menopausal or not, will have about half the testosterone she had when she was younger. In addition, women who've had their ovaries removed will have about half the testosterone compared to women the same age who have their ovaries. So almost by definition, every 50-year-old woman has low testosterone levels. But what we know is that that isn't necessarily a associated with a sexual problem. But there are certainly data to show that adding testosterone to menopausal women can improve libido and the frequency of satisfying sexual activity. The majority of these studies use a transdermal testosterone patch, which is currently approved for use in Europe, but is not FDA approved here in the United States. Um, So first of all, it's very important that the data are only in menopausal women, both surgical and natural. And really, there is no indication to use testosterone in otherwise healthy, young, cycling women. Um, And of course, in those women, there's also the increased risk that they could expose a fetus to testosterone. So I think it's very important that testosterone not be used in reproductive aged women. First of all, there's no good evidence. And second of all, there may be increased risks. So in a group of both surgically and naturally menopausal women, what we know is that using um, a transdermal testosterone patch that bumps testosterone levels to the upper limit of normal for young women, so still within what we would call the physiologic range, but back to maybe the levels a woman might have had when she was 20 or 30. What we know from those studies is that there is a significant improvement in most aspects of sexual function, including a satisfying sexual events compared to placebo-treated women. What I'd like to point out, though, is that placebo was very effective, and I think this is really important. I think what that really shows us is that so much of improving a woman's sex life is above the neck, and that by really seeing relationship counselors or sex therapists, 
adjusting medications and doing other things, women can really improve their sex lives without using hormones. So placebo really did work. But these improvements were significant compared to placebo. I also like to point out, though, that they were not dramatic. Women in the study typically were having satisfying sexual activity about once or twice in four weeks, and this bumped that about two additional times compared to placebo. So these were not dramatic changes in women's sex lives. And in the studies that you're citing now, uh, were these women who received testosterone patches with estrogen? Or were these testosterone patches without estrogen? You're asking this at a perfect time because up until about a month ago, I would have said they were all in estrogen-treated women. But uh, recently published was the first study of using these testosterone patches in women who are not receiving estrogen as well. And Mm -hmm. basically, the patches were just as effective. Which is actually, I thought, was a little bit of a surprise. I think the expectation was that uh, you really needed that estrogen as well. I think you're right. That's why you know, we really were only using the two together. So it's nice to have a study that the testosterone was still effective in the absence of additional estrogen because so many of our patients, you know, if they're not having hot flashes, they no longer need to be on estrogens. But I think the biggest concern about using transdermal testosterone or any testosterone is it's very important that women realize we do not have long-term safety data. The best safety data we have from clinical trials, most of it is one year. There's a little bit of data up until two years, but that certainly isn't enough to tell us about the major safety concerns. And my understanding is that's why it wasn't FDA approved. It wasn't that they found a problem. They just felt that they needed longer-term studies. You're absolutely right, Lauren. Basically, the FDA and an advisory committee said, well, you know what? We do agree that the patches look effective from these data, but we're very concerned concerned about long-term safety, and, you know, I think they'll be hesitant to approve the patch until they have those data, you know, given what we learned about estrogen when randomized studies were done. Um, In the study that I just mentioned, that first study to look at testosterone in women not using estrogen, there were several additional cases of breast cancer in the testosterone-treated women that weren't seen in the placebo-treated women. Now, that could just be due to chance. We expect that women who are menopausal and have used estrogens in the past will have some cases of testosterone. It certainly wasn't significantly greater in testosterone-treated women compared to placebo-treated women. But again, it's very important that both clinicians and patients are aware before thinking about a trial of testosterone that we don't have long-term safety data. And one last question I just have to ask, uh, the role of Viagra in women. This is something that comes up all the time that our patients ask us about. There have been some really well-done double-blind randomized studies that have shown that Viagra is effective, but no more effective than placebo. So I do not typically advise it for sexual problems in women. There was one very nice study, though, looking at a very specific group of women. So these are women who had um, satisfying sexual lives then had the onset of depression, were treated with an SSRI, and in the setting of the SSRI use, developed um, sexual dysfunction. And in that very specific group of women, the investigators showed that the addition of Viagra improved sexual response, particularly arousal and orgasmic response, not, not necessarily desire. And anecdotally in your practice, have you been prescribing in that situation? Since that study's come out, I have been using it for that very specific indication. Well, thanks to Dr. Schifrin, who has enlightened us on clinical relevance of treating sexual dysfunction in women. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, 
visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.